Well, hey, good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good. Hey, happy October. We are already in the month of October. Isn't that terrifying? And uh, what I love about October is it can be 78 and sunny today and snowing in like by Wednesday. So uh, we are in the fun time to be a Michigander. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Kings 17. We're going to be in 1 Kings 17. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We have people coming down the aisles who will get a Bible to you. We are in the Old Testament. And uh, I just want to set the, the stage by saying I am really excited about this morning. We are beginning a brand new series. So if you're here for the first time, this is a great time to start. If you're back here after a few weeks, you've picked a great weekend to be at church because we are kicking off a brand new study, which as you saw in our little trailer video, is on the life of Elijah. And um, Elijah is a guy that I would say most people who've grown up in the church, they know the name Elijah. They've heard some of the stories, but most of us have never really done an in-depth study on the life of Elijah. We're like, yeah, I know he's a prophet. I know some crazy things happen, but that's about it. And um, here's what I'm going to argue as we kick off this study. If you could make a Mount Rushmore of faith... Um, in all of human history, Elijah is on that mountain and his face is like in the middle. This dude is really, really important. He is the greatest prophet in the nation of Israel. Some would argue that in the Old Testament, he might be the greatest man in the entire Old Testament. And then even now in heaven, Elijah has a special relationship with Jesus Christ. There's this cool story in the life and ministry of Jesus that right before Jesus is about to go to Jerusalem and die on the cross, he takes his three best friends and they go up on a mountain and Jesus transfigures. That means that for a moment, kind of his true nature and his true glory showed for his best friends to see. And when that happened, two men came down from heaven to hang out with Jesus, to minister to Jesus, to encourage Jesus. And one of those men was Elijah. This is a special man. And before we start at the beginning of Elijah's life, I want to talk about the end of his life here on earth. I want to start by showing how it finished for Elijah. So this is on the screen. This is 2 Kings 2, 9 through 11. It says this. It says, when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Elisha was Elijah's protege, he goes, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please give me a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you've asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, listen to this, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. So Elijah was such an impactful man, such a man of faith, that he is one of two men in all of the Bible that we are told never tasted death. That he miraculously was taken to heaven in chariots and horses of fire. The other man is a man named Enoch we know very little about. But here's what I'm going to argue this morning. If a guy is so impactful that he is taken up to heaven in chariots of fire, it's probably a good idea to get to know who this guy is and why God was so impressed with him. Am I right? Do me a favor, turn to your neighbor and say, that's probably a good idea. Right? We're going to want to know a little bit about this guy that Scripture preaches so highly of. And so I need to shoot straight with you. Today's message is going to be a little bit different. 
If you're a part of our church, you know that we usually just like to open Scripture, and we're in one passage, and we're kind of working our way through it verse by verse. And if you look at your notes, we're only going to technically be in one verse today, uh, 1 Kings 17.1. But in order to do that, I've got to give you like a 300-year history lesson to set up the context of what's going on in Israel when Elijah enters the scene, because there is a lot that's happening. We're going to have to talk about the backdrop. I want to explain who the players in the story of Elijah are, but then we're going to look at some major themes that we're going to find are super relevant and practical for us today. It's going to be a lot. Listen fast. I'm going to talk fast. Hang in there with me, all right? All right, let's start with the backdrop. Here's what you need to know about Israel when Elijah is ministering there. It is a kingdom in a death spiral. Things are awful when Elijah enters the scene. And in order to understand this, I need to jump all the way back two or 300 years to the book of 1 Samuel, because this is when the death spiral starts. 1 Samuel 8 says this, it says, And all of the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all of the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. Listen to this. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So here's what happens. When God met with Abraham and said, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation and you're going to be my people. He said, one of the things that's going to set you apart from every other nation in the world is you're not going to need a king because I'm going to be your ruler. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to govern over you. I'm going to be your king. Right? And then if you remember the story, they go to the promised land, Abraham and his family, but they flee to Egypt when a famine hits. They get taken captive in Egypt. Miraculously, God sends a man named Moses to free them from the grip of Pharaoh. They go back into the promised land. They're led in by a man named Joshua who defeats all of the Canaanite armies or many of them as he is settling the land. And what happens is as life begins to get comfortable, as they're back in their homeland, as life starts to settle down, as they're being established as a nation, they look at all the other Canaanite nations and they're like, God, we don't want you to be our king. We actually want our own king. We want a man to rule us. We want to fit in with our neighborhood. This whole thing where we don't have an actual leader is weird. We want our own king. And see what God says? He goes, Samuel, don't worry about it. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. And then throw the next slide. So here's what happens. Here are the first three kings of Israel. This is when Israel is a united kingdom. The first king is Saul. I'm going to call him the people's king. He is strong. He is handsome. He's a military leader. He, he's someone that you would want to be friends with. This is like, man, if you could like go to a lab and, and input who should a king be, this guy would come out. And for a while it goes okay, but at the end of Saul's life, he rejects the Lord. He won't listen to the Lord anymore. And he actually starts to involve himself in demonic witchcrafts. He, he goes to witches. He's trying to talk to dead people. He's into seances. He, he goes very, very dark and demonic, and he's killed in battle. The next king I'm going to call God's king, and that's King David. And this is a man who we're told whose heart was after the Lord. And he was far from a perfect man. He had some major sin issues in his life, but he was the one who kind of established peace in the kingdom of Israel. He was a warrior king. He defeated the Philistines. He defeated other enemies. God blessed his ministry and gave Israel victory. And then the other thing you need to know, in 2 Samuel 7, God establishes a covenant with David. And he says, you are my kingly line. 
You are to be my leader and your children to be the leaders of Israel. And it's going to be through your line that the ultimate king and savior of the world, Jesus Christ, will come. David has a special relationship with God. David's son, uh, Solomon, is the next king. I'm going to call him the blessed king. This is like best case scenario for Israel. There's no war. They have peace. They have wealth. They have prosperity. God blesses Solomon with immeasurable wisdom. So he's like the guy you'd want to be leading your country. But what happens is, is he falls into the snare of sexual temptation. He starts to marry hundreds and hundreds of women. These women bring their Canaanite gods. And all of a sudden Solomon's heart is turned from the Lord. And he starts engaging in idolatry. That's the first three kings. And then there is a divide in the nation. And 10 of the tribes, the northern kingdom, they reject the Davidic covenant. They're saying, we don't want anything to do with Solomon or David or their line of kings. We want our own kings. We want our own rulers. And and the 10 north kingdoms, it exists for 200 years. They have 19 kings. Every single one of them is wicked and they fall into captivity. Nothing good happens. It's a death spiral. And this is the kingdom that God calls Elijah to. All right? It's brutal. So let me bring you up to speed to where the northern kingdom is once Elijah gets there. Here's, uh, throw up the next slide. I've thrown all the passages of scripture. This is all in 1 Kings. If you want to read these and be thoroughly depressed, knock yourself out, you can take a picture of the slide. First was Jeroboam. In the northern kingdom, he reigned 22 years. It says that he was wicked, and he established high places or places of worship for Canaanite pagan false gods. Nadab followed him. He only reigned for two years. He was also wicked, and he got murdered by Basha, who reigned for 24 years, who was a murderer, also wicked, didn't follow the Lord. Uh, After him was Elah. He only ruled for two years. He was also murdered. But the nice thing about his murder is that he was drunk out of his mind, so he didn't even know what was happening, right? So I guess that might be a little bit better. I don't know. It's not great. That's followed by Omri, who reigned for 12 years. And we're told in verse 25 of 1 Kings 16 that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. All right, things are not getting better. They're getting worse. Omri's the worst. Followed by him is Ahab and Jezebel. And this is where Elijah enters the picture. All right, here's why I take the time to go through this. 1 Kings 13 through 16 are some of the most depressing chapters in the entire Bible. The kings are wicked. Idol worship is running rampant. The hearts of the people have turned from God. It is not a good or safe time to be a prophet. All right, so that's the backdrop kingdom in a death spiral. All right, let's talk about the players. We need to first talk about Ahab and Jezebel, and I am actually going to have you read about them. Turn back one chapter to 1 Kings 16, starting at verse 29. Here's what it says about Ahab and Jezebel. It says, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, listen to this, more than all who were before him. And if, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. All right, 
This dude is wicked. He is the worst of all of the kings of Israel. He hates God. He has done more to anger God and reject God than any other king. And here's what we're going to find out in the coming weeks. The dude's a borderline psychopath. It's not great. But here's what's really interesting. Jezebel is also named with Ahab. It's the only one in this list where the wife's name is also given. So that has to be significant. So it's not just Ahab we've got to know. We've got to know who Jezebel is. And uh, the reason she is listed along with her husband is two reasons. Here's the first you're going to see in the coming weeks. She is the practical leader of both the marriage and the kingdom. She's running the show. She's calling the shots. In many ways, Ahab is acting as her errand boy. Here's the other thing you need to know. She is the one who introduced Baal worship to the people of Israel. She was from an enemy country called Sidon. Her dad's name was Ethbaal, and we read about him in Scripture that he was a priest of Baal, and the way he became king at Sidon was he murdered the king. So he's a murderer, he's a priest of Baal. She was raised to be a priestess of the God of Baal, and commentators say that she would have carried all of the markers of actual demon possession. All right, so the people ruling and reigning in Israel when Elijah's ministering, you've got a psychopath king and his demon-possessed wife. Quite a power couple, huh? It's rough. All right, now let's talk about Elijah. That's the next player we need to talk about. And next to him, I have written, the Lord is my God, because that's what his name actually means. El in Elijah, that was a very common name for the word God. Many different religions would refer to a god or goddess as El. All right, so that's kind of a very common name, but Elijah, the J-A-H, that's a reference to Jehovah, which was very, very specific to the God of Israel. So when you put them together, what his name means is the Lord, the one true God of Israel, is my God. And what you need to understand is, back in the Old Testament, names held great significance. Right? They don't hold as much significance today, and I'm actually thankful for that. You know why? Do you know what the name Calvin means? It means the bald one. Do you guys know that? <laughs> not the bold one, the bald one. So I, I'm thankful that that is not a prophecy over my life, and I feel like every day I have hair, it is silent rebellion against my parents, and it makes me so happy, right? But we name kids because we like the name or it's a family name. The, the names in the Old Testament, they would carry prophetic meaning. And so what you're seeing is even in his name, there's this promise over his life that in a culture that is turned from God, he would be a voice that would be faithful. He would be countercultural and a man who would be devoted to the one true God. Okay, and here's where Elijah enters the scene. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. Here's what we see. It says, now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. That is the first we hear of Elijah. He walks into the palace and comes out firing at Ahab and saying, it's not going to rain until I say so. Here's what else we know about Elijah before that. Absolutely nothing. He's from Tishbe. It's a small agricultural village. He was not wealthy. He was not well-educated. He did not come from royalty. There was nothing special about this man, right? In our tagline for our series, it says, Elijah, a man with a nature like ours. Do you know why we say that? Because there was nothing anointed or unique other than he was a man who was committed to boldly following the Lord. 
All right, but to understand what's happening in 17.1, you need to understand the third set of players, and it's this. The life and ministry of Elijah is defined by a battle between Yahweh, the God of Israel, versus Baal and Asherah. His whole ministry is about who is going to win this fight. Is it Yahweh or is it Baal and Asherah? So let's talk about Baal first. Baal was the God of the rain and the land, and he is represented by a statue of a bull, right? Because bulls were strong, they they were fierce, and they represented vitality. Okay, so hang with me. In an agricultural society, rain meant everything. If you had rain, you had wealth, your crops would grow, you had power, you had prosperity, you had comfort. If there was a drought, if there was no rain, you were ruined. So being the God of the land and of the rain, that was the most important God. And the way you worship Baal is you would offer him sacrifices, and if he was happy with you, he would allow it to rain, and you would make money, you would be wealthy, you'd have a good life. All right? Asherah, was the goddess of sex and fertility. She's represented by the carving or a statue of a tree. And Asherah was either seen as the mother or wife of Baal, but they're linked together, and they would be worshipped as a pair. And the worship of Asherah would involve engaging in sexually explicit acts. There would be temple prostitution, there would be child prostitution. There would be child sacrifice. They're all of the things that you would think of when you think of the darkest versions of pagan idolatry would happen at the worship of Baal and Asherah. All right, so with that in context, look at verse 1 again. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. Okay, do you see how the, be- the battle's beginning? He is walking into the palace of a psychopath king and a demon-possessed woman who's given her life to the worship of the God of rain. And, and Elijah comes in and says, Hey, Ahab, it's not going to rain until I say so. It's a direct attack against Baal. And Elijah's setting the groundwork for a battle that says, My God is the one true God who lives and reigns, and he has power and authority over your demonic gods. This is the fight. Okay, so that was a lot, wasn't it? And um, that's a lot of background to get us to the life of Elijah. The next weeks, it's going to be more narratives and stories about his ministry. But here's what we know. We know that all Scripture is God-breathed, it's alive, and it speaks to us today. So what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning is I want to look at some major themes that we can draw out from this spiral that Israel is in that I believe are relevant and practical for us today. All right, here's the first major theme I see as we look at the trajectory of Israel. It's this. It's that we tend to hope in government. It's a thing, isn't it? Right? Do you remember when the spiral in Israel started? It's when they went to one of the prophets and they said, hey, we don't want God to be our king anymore. We don't want our hope to be in him. We want our hope to be in a leader, in a governor, in in a man. We think that a man will provide for us what God intended and wanted to provide for us. Our hope is in a person or a system of government. All right, church, you guys are smart. Why do I highlight this as a major thing? Because guess where we're going to be in exactly 12 months from now? We're going to be in the teeth of another presidential election. And I was doing the math. In the 2024 election cycle, it will be my fourth 
uh, election cycle serving as a pastor at this church. And so here's what I can say with absolute certainty. Do you want to know what happens every four years? Christians tell on themselves. Did you know that? And what becomes very, very apparent is practically many Christians have their hope placed in the White House and in Washington, D.C., more so than they do in the God of the universe. And every four years, there is an increasing amount of pressure on the leaders of this church to make this place not about Jesus Christ anymore, not about the worship of his name, not about his word, but we get pressured to make it about a president, a campaign, a party, or a policy. Happens every time. Like, here's what I can say just because it's true. In my history, serving as a pastor in this church, the most divisive issue in our church is politics, five to one. Whether that be people angry, whether that be people leaving, whether that be people blowing up small groups, politics becomes a thing where practically people's hopes get wrapped up into it. And I want you to hear me super clearly here. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that politics don't matter. I'm not saying that it's wrong to care about politics. I'm not saying it's wrong to engage. It's an amazing privilege that we can have some level of influence in who's elected to govern over us. Most of the world has not had to have that historically. Go be a part. You can care about it. But here's what I'm saying. And again, listen to this. I want Christian voices and Christian leaders leading our country. I think that that's a great blessing from the Lord. But here's what I'm saying. It cannot touch our hope. There is one Savior of the world... There is one hope of the world, and he is not running for president in 2024. He's already come. His work's already done. His name's Jesus Christ. He defeated sin and death. He rose from the dead. He is reigning and ruling over the king's hearts over this entire world, and he is coming again, and he is defeating the enemy once and for all, and that's where our hope lies. Listen. problem with election cycles is so much of it is run on fear. And I was talking with a Christian uh, four years ago, someone that I deeply respect and love, sincerely loves the Lord. And he goes, Cal, man, you know, if Biden wins this election, Christianity is going to be illegal in America in under two years. That's what he said. And I was like, I don't believe you. Like, we've got some pretty amazing protections in our Constitution. We've got a conservative Supreme Court. Like, you can't just burn the Constitution in two years. Like, I don't think that's going to happen. But I said, even if it does happen, it still doesn't touch our hope. Listen, politics is about who is in power and who has control. And Christians, you need to hear this. Do you know God has promised none of these things to us here on this earth? Like, in fact, Jesus tells his disciples... He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Listen, we do not have the divine right to have it easy here on earth. Our hope is in heaven where our citizenship lies. Amen? That's the first. The thing started when hope got transferred off of God to a leader. Okay, here's the next one, the next theme. It's the reality of generational sin. There is a theme when we study these kings where the wickedness of one king led to the wickedness of another king, led to the wickedness of another king. You see this thing spiral through generations. And what's interesting is, is that for multiple of the kings, when you go back and read on their life, the Bible says not only did they sin, not only were they wicked, but it says they made the people of Israel sin. 
So, so what the Bible is saying that is, is to whom much is given, much is required. And these kings who were given much authority and, and had much over their command, that they were held responsible for the sin of the people. And what the Bible is reminding us, church, look at me, we need to view ourselves as stewards. We are called to steward the things and relationships that God has given us. And there's a whole sermon I could preach on generational sin. I don't have the time for that. Here's the highlights. The first thing is this. You need to hear me. You are not defined by your past. Did you know that? That the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of Jesus Christ in your life can radically transform your life. And I know so many people where it's like, man, my family has this thing in their background and great grandpa and grandpa and dad all struggled with this, but the Lord has freed me from the bonds of slavery to that thing, from that addiction, and I've experienced transformation and my family is nothing like the family that I grew up in and that's amazing to God's glory. You are not defined by your past. Turn the person next to you and say, you're not defined by your past. Okay? You have to believe that. Okay, but listen to me. This is also true. You are setting the trajectory for your and your family's future. Did you know that? How you live, the choices you make, what you choose to worship is going to set the trajectory for your and your family's future. All right, so let's get really practical about this. Hey, dads, your kids, when they're in college or when they're adults, what are they going to believe is number one and should sit on the throne of their hearts? Is it the Lord or is it sports? What wins in your household? What trajectory are you setting? And it's like, man, I talk with parents all the time where it was like, yeah, growing up, my kid played in three different sports teams at the same time. So they had six practices a week and three games on the weekend and things like church and small group and youth group. Those were afterthoughts because we were too busy chasing sports. And they're like, man, now my son's 30 and wants nothing to do with the Lord. I don't know what happened. I'm like, of course you do. You set a trajectory that the things of the Lord would be secondary and that he should chase the God of athletics. He is following the path that you paved for him. Mom, are you setting a trajectory of coddling or character? Are you willing not to be liked for a little bit in order to love your kids? One of the greatest like, lines that my wife gives to our kids all the time, they'll come home and they won't want to do homework or they'll be frustrated or, or they've just got something in their life they don't want to deal with. And Mary will look at our kids and go, hey guys, you can do, and then they have to say hard things, right? You can do hard things. And Mary goes, why? Because God is with me. And it's like, listen, life's not always meant to be easy, but we're going to instill character. We're not going to give up. We can do it because character is our priority. Here's one for both parents. Uh, I'll pick on everyone now. Uh, do your kids see you pray? Right? If we want to have the next generation be people who are dependent on the Lord and have a real relationship with Jesus and call out to him and cry out to him and live to follow him and serve them, how is that going to happen when our kids never see us on our knees praying, seeking the Lord? Listen, you are not defined by your past, but you are setting the trajectory for your family's future. Israel started to get in a downward spiral, and one generation sin led to the next, led to the next, led to the next. This is fun, isn't it? These are cool themes, right? All right, it's going to get worse before it gets better, I promise. Here's the next one. Um, the third thing we see is a demonic influence in our world. Demonic influence in our world. All right, 
So to understand how the world works through the lens of the Bible, you need to believe that there are outside spiritual forces that we can't see, both good and evil. These are called angels and demons. And the Bible calls Satan the prince of this world. Here's what that means. That Satan can't do whatever he wants, but God has given limited authority to Satan and his demons over culture and over our world. This is his domain until Jesus returns and defeats him once and for all. We read about this in Ephesians 6. Here's what Paul says. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, so we've got this idea that Satan and his demons have limited authority over this world. And here's what happens. This is the danger that we can fall into when we read about Elijah. We can become what I like to call chronologically arrogant. All right, here's what that means. We believe that because we lived 3,000 years later than Elijah and the people of Israel, that we're somehow smarter than they were. And it's like, why would these stupid people worship these statues and, and these trees believing that something would happen? Like, I remember growing up being like, man, how boring must it have been to live in Bible times if, like, the funnest thing they could do was go worship false gods and worship these statues? Like, these people were idiots. Here's the thing. There is no evidence to suggest that people who lived 3,000 years ago were any less smart, any less kind, any, or any more or less moral than we are today. They were not dumber than we are. Here's what I'm going to argue that these idols and these temples of worship had real demonic power and influence. And when they went to worship Baal, demonic things, demonic power, signs would happen. What they were worshiping, it wasn't just a statue that was doing nothing. There was real demonic power in these gods, and these gods demanded that they appease them in order to get what they want. And I would argue that these same demons are present and working in our culture today, it just looks a little bit different. I mean, think about it. Baal, he represented wealth, power, and comfort, and Asherah represented sex. Does that sound like forces that drive our society today? What do you think? Wealth, power, comfort, and sex. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Same demons operating in different ways. Like, and by the way, they're not even really trying to hide that much. Do you know that if you go to the New York Stock Exchange, which is like the center for capitalism in America, it represents wealth, power, money. Do you know what's outside the New York Stock Exchange? A massive statue of guess what? A bull, right? The same thing that was worshipped 3,000 years ago in hopes that it would provide money, power, and status. Or here's one. Um, one of the things that's really interesting is if you study pagan worship, ancient paganism throughout the entire world, different gods, different stories, it would look a little bit different, but most, almost universally, they share something in common. It involves child sacrifice. That whether it's the Aztec and Mayans in Mexico or South America, whether it's Native Americans, whether it's Scandinavians in the Vikings or in Africa, pagan worship, worship to these pagan gods, involves killing your children as a sacrifice to these gods. And here's what's interesting to me. We are actually wired to want to value and protect and take care of children. 
right? Children are precious, and, and parents say to me all the time, like, there's nothing I wouldn't do for my kids. I was just at a football game. Judah plays flag football on Saturdays at Grand Haven High School, and yesterday I was at his game, and Bo was sitting next to me. And uh, we were sitting with some friends, and our friends have like a two-year-old and a three-year-old. And the two-year-old wanted to sit with me. So we're on the bleachers, and he sits with me for a little bit, but then he gets squirmy. So he's crawling up the, the stairs, and he's hanging on the, 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 the railings, and he's just being a two-year-old. Well, while this is happening, my son Bo is a nervous wreck. He is like, I know that this kid is going to fall and split his head open. So, so Bo can't even watch the game because he's so nervous that this two-year-old is going to fall and hurt himself. And at the end, he's like, Dad, you just need to pick up baby Moses because I can't take it anymore. And we've got to go sit somewhere else or you've got to take care of this. Like, he was so nervous that this kid was going to get hurt. So here's what I'm going to argue. If even my 10-year-old son is wired to want to protect little kids, how is it that worldwide... In the worship of these pagan gods, child sacrifice is a thing. Here's the only way I can make sense of it. There are outside demonic forces demanding that we sacrifice what is most precious to us in order for the promise that we will get a better life. It was, if you give your child to me, I will give you victory in war. I will make it rain. I will give you money. I will give you peace. I I will give you life. And it is this lie, because here's what you need to understand about Satan and demons. They want to destroy image bearers of God. They want to destroy our relationship spiritually with the Lord, and they want to destroy us physically if they can. And I'm going to argue that what we see worldwide is demonic influence pushing towards child sacrifice. And here's what I want to do now. Can we contrast that with the message of the gospel? So like, isn't it amazing that when you involve yourself in demonic idol worship, you've got to give what's most precious of yours to appease God? Hey, if you want life, if you want peace, if you want victory, you need to give your child to me. What does God do? God says that while we were his enemies, that while we had turned away from God, that while we were wicked and shaking our fists at God, God loved us so much that he entered the world and he gave himself for us so that we would be reconciled to God. God did for us what the demonic gods demand that we do for them. It's a complete 180, and that is why the message of the gospel is so countercultural, and it's hated by demonic forces in our society. So in 2023 in America, can I ask a question? Are we any more evolved than these pagan cultures that we study back then? How many children are sacrificed at the altar of sexual freedom without consequence and without responsibility. Same demons, same intentions, operating in different ways. We have to understand there's more going on in our world than what we see. Okay, here's the fourth. Fourth theme is this. It's God showing unmerited grace. God showing unmerited grace Like, you need to understand, nowhere when you read in 1 Kings 13 through 16 do we see any hint of repentance. These people are happy with their rulers. They're happy with their kings. They're happy with their paganism. They're happy with the way it's going. God would have been just to let them go to their destruction. But what does God do? He sends a voice called Elijah who's going to come and call them to repentance. And this is God saying, I love you, I care about you, and I have made promises to this nation, and I'm not just going to let them go without doing anything. 
So in the midst of their sin, in the midst of their rebellion, he sends a voice that says, no, 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 the God of Israel, he is the one true God. Yahweh is the ruler of the world. Turn back to him, repent, save yourself from destruction. And by the way, this is your and my story as well. Right? None were righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us in here stands rightfully guilty before God for turning from Him and turning to ourselves and worshiping us as all important centers of the universe. Yet God in His love for us while we were yet sinners sent Jesus Christ to die for us. So here's what I'm going to say. Moral arrogance cannot be a part of our story. If your faith in Jesus Christ is leading you to a place of arrogance, you haven't fully embraced the gospel. We were shown grace. We were shown love when we didn't deserve it. This is what God is doing to his kingdom 3,000 years ago. All right, and then here's the fourth that I want to talk about. It's this. It's God empowering courageous obedience. God empowering courageous obedience. I want to close this morning with this thought. Um, did you know that the courage of Elijah, I, I believe this, look at me, it would blow all of our combined courage out of the water. I genuinely believe that Elijah carried more courage in his heart than all of us in this room combined. All right, I want you to think about it. Imagine entering the palace of a psychopath king and his demon-possessed wife, who has dedicated her life to serving the God of Baal, walking in there and saying, hey, Ahab and Jezebel, I want to tell you, it's not raining until I say so. Like, he is walking in there being like, I am for sure going to die right now, right? Like, there is no reason he should expect anything than certain death. But he's like, the Lord has told me to do this. I'm going to be faithful to his word. And it's scary, and I don't know what's going to happen. But I am so committed to boldly following the Lord that I'm going to be obedient, even in the most difficult of circumstances. Like, church, can I get real? Many of us in this room, we don't have the boldness to pray around people that we don't know. Right? We're worried. Are they going to look at me weird? Are they going to think less of me if they see me pray? Am I going to offend? Am, am I going to cause someone to be uncomfortable? So, so we don't pray unless we're in the privacy of our own home. Right? Many of us, it's like, man, I really don't share my faith with my neighbors or my coworkers. And I don't invite people to church because I don't want them to think that I'm weird. And I don't want to offend and I don't want to cause conflict. And, and so I, I just stay quiet about these things. I love the Lord and I believe in him. I, I just don't have the boldness to share because I'm worried about what others might think. Like, I'll be honest with you. I get nervous when people find out that I'm a pastor. You know why? Because people get weird around pastors. Did you know that? They start like crossing themselves a lot and saying thou. You know, it's like, what just happened? I am the same person I was like 15 minutes ago, but like it can make it awkward and it can get weird. And here's what I, I would argue. How many of you would say, man, I would love to experience more of the power of God in my life like this week? Huh? Raise your hand if that's you, be bold. Like that would be amazing. Have you ever considered that the power of God that you experience in your life might actually be tied to how courageous and bold you are for his name and for his glory? Like if you do a study in the book of Acts and you just look up every time the Holy Spirit descends on a new group of people, guess what happens every single time? There is bold, courageous witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, and here's what scares me. We think 
that things will change when laws are passed or people are elected into power. Listen, policies and laws and presidents have no power to change someone's heart. You know what changes hearts? The bold proclamation of the gospel by the people of God. If we want to have a dent in our community or in our state or in our country, if we want to see revival, it's going to start with us being all in on the name of Jesus Christ. And that means I might lose a little bit with some people, but that's okay because I won't trade that for experiencing the intimacy of my relationship with God and his power in my life. The reason we are studying Elijah, I heard a pastor say it this way. It says, when culture's lost its mind and the church has lost its way, everyone's in trouble. Amen? I want to be a people in 2023 in America, listen to me, who's not morally arrogant because that does not honor the Lord, but has the bold courage to stand for the things of the Lord in a way that loves others and honors the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen? Elijah's going to teach us how to do that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your word. Um, God, thank you for um, how your spirit can move even in some really just dark portions of scripture. And God, I know that this week has been convicting for me. It's been humbling for me. It's been pressing into areas of um, blind spots and idolatry in my heart, God. And I just pray just for your spirit to fall on us, that we would be a people who are bold in your proclamation of the gospel, that we would have a bold witness with the people around us, that we would be a people who are so on fire for you and enamored with your goodness that it would be the thing that defines our life. That like Elijah, that the Lord would be our God, that we would be a people whose desire is to lift your name, the name that is above every other single name in all of creation, higher than anything else in our lives. God, your name is great. Let us lift that up. It's in your name we pray. Amen.